For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, and welcome into episode 59 of the House of L podcast. I'm the L of House of L. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thanks for hanging out with us. I am excited for you to hear this week's episode. I know I say that every week, but it's true. You end up talking with really good people, and it ends up being a fun, fun time. And I'll I'll get to who our guest is momentarily. I am very happy that people are going back and listening to some of the other episodes and I'm glad that some of the it's it's weird because when I have a guest on the show I don't want them to feel like they have to promote it but it's always nice when they do and when they do the response like goes through the roof so anyone who's an active participant in it like Kelly Crawl was very active when she tweeted out the episode same thing with Sarah Spain Chris Tannehill, Joe Ostrowski, and the numbers bear it out. But you don't want to have to rely on that. I mean, I'm relying on you to enjoy the podcast, and and that's how you decide, you know, I'm going to listen to this because Lawrence says it's good, which is great, which is what I'm hoping for is the whole reason I started the podcast anyway, to give you some some more fun, showcase some stuff that I think I do all right at, and and free content, right? Isn't that what everyone is about? Get yourself some free content, and you're good to go. Well, anyway, I'm glad that people are going back and checking out some of the the old episodes or older episodes that are available. And you sometimes can stumble upon a gem, a gem of of an episode that you may not have realized. And and that's why I say please scroll through. Some people that you might have wanted on the show might actually have already been on it, which is great. So I went shooting. And I know that that I talked about this a little bit on the radio show, but I thought I could I could go more in depth on it here in the pod before we get to our guest. So um, my wife is from central Illinois. Her, her family is a family of hunter-gatherers, more hunter than gatherer. And there was a death in the family, and we celebrated the, the death in the family after, you know, we did the, the cremation and had the ceremony. The part of the family owns a shooting range. So my father-in-law took me out to the shooting range and I know it felt like an it, it was the next installment in the get out series but it isn't it took me to the shooting range where everyone was partying and presented me with a shotgun he didn't point it at me he was in a box and he was like this is yours and I was like I don't have a Foyd card yet and he and I guess it's legal 
you can actually shoot with someone who does have a Foyd card, which I, I didn't know, and then I found out. So we went shooting, and I shot a 12-gauge shotgun. And I said, isn't this a little weird that the first time I'm shooting, I'm shooting at moving targets? But I actually hit a bunch of them, and it's kind of like quarterbacking a little bit where you're trying to lead the shot, and you hit the target. So at one point I hit four in a row, and I think on the out of the 35 shots that I took, I hit like nine targets or something like that, which I'm taking as a win. It was really cold, so I was shooting in a big coat, and that was kind of uncomfortable. But I enjoyed it, and I figured out that I'm left-eye dominant. So anyway, I don't know if it's going to become a thing if I'm going to keep doing target shooting. But it was a fun way to bond with my father-in-law. Um, White Panther, she got out there too. She's pretty good shot. No surprise. And we had fun. I posted video, but I was trying not to post too much of the video because I know that there are some people who are sensitive to guns, and I get that, and and I was one of those people. I'm, I would say that I am someone who does believe in the Second Amendment, but I also believe that there should be limits to how many guns you have. But that's all another story for a whole diff- a different day. But I had a fun time. I had a really good time, and I, I actually found it stress-relieving. Is that even a thing? Target practice is stress-relieving? But I found it stress-relieving, and I learned a lot about gun safety and all sorts of stuff. So thanks to my father-in-law, Bob, for helping out in that regard, and my brother-in-law, Mikey. And he said, Mikey's like a bow hunter and stuff. Like, he's kind of, he's kind of, you know, covering himself with deer urine, like the old Doug Buffon stuff. I I don't know if I'm going to be in a tree blind with him, but it was nice to have him there because he was helping me out, and he helped. It helped me like work through my nerves on loading the gun and all that stuff. Anyway, it was a fun experience. I'm sure I'll do it again. I just don't know when, and I should probably get on that whole Foyd card thing. I'm on it. Are we allowed to have, am I allowed to have a shotgun in the house in the city? These are things I need to figure out. Am I going to have to keep that thing down in Oakland? We shall see. All right. Kathy Cheney is my guest this week. And you're like, wait, I don't know Kathy Cheney. Or maybe you do. If you're in media in Chicago, you know Kathy. She's someone who's been in this business for a really long time. She's done every job that you can imagine. And now she is one of the editors over at the Sun-Times. She's the deputy managing editor of breaking news and she does all the the staff development. She's phenomenal. And she's one of the people that I really wanted to to kind of give a platform to because she used to give me a platform with the National Association of Black Journalists. That's how we met. Kathy is one of the most powerful black people in media in Chicago. And it was great to sit down and talk with her about some of this stuff. Now, you might go, wait a minute, I have heard that name and I've recently seen that name. And it might be because you watched Surviving R. Kelly. Kathy was one of the women interviewed for the Surviving R. Kelly series on Lifetime. And 
she's been covering R. Kelly for a couple of decades now. And it's part of the reason that I wanted to talk with her. I wanted to talk with her about that experience of this open secret that people in Chicago knew and how we're finally seeing some consequences for bad actions for R. Kelly. And I wanted to know what that was like for her to be involved in something that was so serious, something that might have been a great example of advocate journalism. So it was good to talk with her. And and we found out, I say this all the time, Chicago is the smallest big city in the world. Everyone is like one person away from someone else. And in the black community in Chicago on the South side, it's even closer. And, and Kathy and I figured that out while we were having our conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. She gives some incredible tips about what journalism is, what it should be, and how some of the terms that you hear, for example, sourcing you know, and on background versus off the record, I think it's important stuff for you to know. But the conversation about R. Kelly is a big portion of what we talk about. We also talk about a little old school Chicago thing. And you can hear our old headness come out in our conversation. This is from the Sun-Times. One of the managing editors there, Kathy Cheney. Right. I'm a baseball chick. I, um, <laughs> I've been playing, I'll say softball, since about maybe age nine. Um, Where'd you grow up? I grew up on the south side. Um, the nickname of the neighborhood is called Rack City. Okay. <laughs> Do you know where, where yes. it is? Okay. So, yeah, I grew up in Rack City, but it's on the south side. Um, I grew up on 92nd and Low, so it's by Woodson Library. I, yeah. I I grew up there, too. Oh, Not. Okay. I'm, I grew up, I went to St. Thaddeus. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, 95th and Harvard. Right. I was about to say over there, closer to Harlan. Exactly. from Loden Homes. Yes. Jawan Howard Nuki. Born, grew up born in, in Loden Homes. Right. Uh, and me. Oh, I, you? Okay. Yes. Born in Loden Homes. And yeah. It's, <laughs> I drove past there the other day and mm-hmm. I was like, wow. It uh, looks completely different. I went to St. Thaddeus Grammar School and we mm-hmm. used to do the early involvement classes. So seventh at and eighth Harlan? grade, I used to take classes Which at Harlem. Which one Harlan. did you take? Took English there. Okay, I did too. So English one and two. Yeah. So wait, where were you at school at? I went to Kipling on 93rd and oh, low. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, went to early involvement um, for English. Uh, I'm a words person. Math is just not my thing, but I know how to count my money and know that my check is right. Facts. Right. So, um, but since Harlan was the neighborhood school, um, I did not want to go. I always wanted to go to Julian, and it just perfectly worked out that Julian was like, yeah, we want you. So I was like, okay, yay. God, you know what I'm thinking about? You probably... I mean, I, I'm almost certain that you grew up on the same block as one of my friends. So I'm going to throw out a name and let's see see if, okay. see if Chicago still is indeed the smallest big city in the world. Do you know the Cody family? If I hear some nicknames or some first names. Probably. Sharon, Tiffany, they're Barba- a family from Barbados. All right. All right. I thought it would work. I might no, have the wrong... I might have the wrong block, but I thought for sure it was like 93rd and low. 
possibly could be right across um, the street from Kipling. Yeah. But, okay, okay. And, and they went to St. Thaddeus as well. But whatever. I mean, I thought I'd throw it out there oh, because— so they probably didn't really hang out in the neighborhood. Maybe not hanging out oh, okay. as much in the neighborhood. Okay. okay. But of the neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I grew up in Roseland. Okay. So, okay. like, 111th and Halstead, like, around okay. there. And my parents just found this small little school of of black Catholics. And, <laughs> and so I ended up at St. Thaddeus. But I used to love – that walk was hard. See, it mm-hmm. wasn't as hard for you because it's a public school. But for me, I was walking up 95th Street in a Catholic uniform. Yeah. That wasn't great. <laughs> that wasn't great walking the halls. You thought you was the stuff, right? Because you had that uniform on. Uh-huh. I, I got you. <laughs> so, all right. So back back to softball. So you were always into baseball, softball? Right. So my mother, um, she is extremely, or she was extremely athletic. So she was like in the Powder Puff League. There was a Robichaux Park. You know Robichaux. Absolutely. Um, so she like won trophies or whatever. So she could play basketball. She could play softball. Um, she probably could play football if, you know, she had the opportunity. Um, but I only picked up the natural softball, baseball skills. So coincidentally, my older daughter picked up her basketball skills, but ah, so what position? Um, I can do outfield, a light catcher. Um, but I was usually like maybe the shortstop all the time. But you know, as long as I was able to hit that ball, I was so happy. Yeah, yeah. So you were always piggy one. Oh yes, <laughs> right up there because Kiplin had the playground, and uh, my best friend lived on the next block from me. That's right across the playground, so we were like the only two girls out there all the time with all the boys playing piggy. That is outstanding. Yeah, yes, I yes. I grew up playing in Jackie Robinson West, ah. so that was my little league. So we won okay. the state championship in '87. I want to say, and then we lost like the regionals that year to like Ohio oh, or something. Man. But I have, like, a at my house, my parents' house. My mom was like, get these trophies out of here. <laughs> at my parents' house, there is a state championship oh, Jackie Robinson West trophy. How exciting. Yeah, it was cool. Like, it was. Too bad it wasn't, like, televised and big. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm but... so happy it wasn't. <laughs> I had I had this coach, these legendary coach, but he hated me. I was a little chubby kid. And he's like, fat kids should have power, and oh you should goodness. hit clean. Oh my god! But he's like a legendary Chicago coach. He was so mean to me. Like, he, oh my god! Yeah, and now like you think back on some of that stuff, and you're like, should adults be talking to kids like that? Because I'm that parent. Don't talk to my kid like that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, how, I'm. How does your how does your experience as an athlete? Like flower the way that you color the way that you look at your children's. Um, I am. I'm that supportive parent. Um, I'm the cheerful parent. I'm in the stands hollering if they're doing something wrong. Like, you know you should have, you know, did that better. You, you butterfingers, come on, do all of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, talk to my kid wrong. I won't fight a child, but literally fight mm-hmm. a child. But I'd be like, look, go get your parents so I can get with them um, if something's going down. So I will speak up, um, but I am... I'm competitive, and I want them to be as well. And I think that if you're on a team, of course you're doing it for fun, but people are trying to win also. Sure. And I got to think about scholarships in the back of my mind, too. It's like, okay, I know you'll get the academic scholarships. The grades are great unless you wouldn't be doing this, but increase the chances, you know. And you got to be competitive. There's nothing wrong with that. 
at all. I mean, you want to try and get as many possibilities and opportunities as exactly. you can. So Kipling, Julian, then where? Uh, I went to Western Illinois University. Go Leathernecks. Yes, go Leathernecks, and then transferred to Loyola. So go Ramblers as well. So how excited were you last year? Oh, my God. Oh, my. I, I hadn't been on campus in, like, decades. But during that whole stretch, I went back up there. I didn't bought all this gear. You got I was yourself just, a scarf? Scarf, the T-shirt, just everything, the pins. I was um, the pennants. I was I went crazy. Um, I was watching the games. It was just so exciting. I was just like, because I just don't remember the last time we were there. I don't think I was born. So it was just, man. Still the only team in the state with a national championship in basketball. Mm. How crazy is that? It's awesome. Like people don't <laughs> people awesome. don't even realize. Now, I went to DePaul mm-hmm. and the folks at DePaul will dispute that because they won an NIT championship in 1945 when the NIT was the big tournament and the NCAA mm. was the smaller tournament, but most people will tell you that that I won't dispute it even as a DePaul person. Mm-hmm. To me, Loyola is the only team in the state that Yeah. Well, we can't take the NIT away from them it's this was big it's whatever i appreciate you being gracious <laughs> <laughs> but we they fought hard for that we're not gonna count that as national why championship. am i hard right hard for it you not? i don't know because you're gracious that's <laughs> okay. why because right. you, you know you got the national championship in your back pocket <laughs> so you over here being gracious about the paul's little nit win in 45 that's why all right so your classmates gonna get on you about that yeah i mean i'm 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 they know everyone knows I don't even. I'm actually shocked that we're talking this much sports. I was not <laughs> expecting this. I was expecting us to like get into the weeds on journalism, and here you are in my neighborhood growing that, up. Rack City chick coming out. Probably right. just walked right past you back Probably in the day. So. Probably in, in my so. little uniform and all that good stuff. Did you go to, to the library to study after school? Yeah, we would go there probably like once. Usually, my mom would drop us off there on Saturdays. Oh, and you didn't go through the, during the week after school? Occasionally. Like, my, my grandmother lived on 89th and Normal. Okay. Yeah. By Ryder. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I would walk across Robichaud Park. So, you got the across-the-tracks experience. Oh. You got, look, okay. Yeah. Yes. You, the full Don't let the smooth taste fool you. <laughs> I can see that now. Yeah. I, I see. I, there were many a days where you had to... Uh-huh. You had to be ready. Yes, know how to navigate that. I was just talking with my uh, my wife about this because we were watching, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a documentary on, what was it? It was on HBO, uh, United Skates. I think John I Legend do it. I didn't see all of it. it yet. So I was explaining to her, I was like, the loop was across the street from my school. Mm-hmm. Like, we would mm-hmm. go roller skating and stuff. Like, right. all the time. Like, that was a big deal. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, like, you don't understand. Between the loop and the rink, I mean, yes. it, that area it of the south side, like, people were roller skating a yes. lot. Yes, yes. Well, they still do at the rink. Okay. but I um, didn't know if the rink was still open mm-hmm. or not. Open completely. Yeah, they still have, um, people have birthday parties there. You know, the adults still have their thing um, in the evenings. It's like after 6 o'clock. Kids need to go home. Adult skate. Exactly. Exactly. Can so, you skate? I can skate, but I'm not one of those that can do, you know, the You're not JVs doing the big wheel. All, yeah, no, no. You can go around and around and probably around. skate a little bit backwards. Maybe just a touch now. <laughs> I haven't tried it. Just a touch. But, um, yeah, I'm not a pro at it, yeah. Okay. I won't look so smooth on it. 
Okay, I I I respect that. I'm not that <laughs> graceful. I I actually can't remember the last time I went skating, but I saw mm-hmm. that documentary and I was like, man, it. By memories, skate parties back in the day used to be the thing. Yeah, well, they still are up there on what 76 and racing. Yeah, the MLK thing, but it's more so like little kids. But still, that's okay. I'm Hang I'm totally spot. okay with that. Yeah. So, what made you leave Western and go to Loyola? Um internships and I was having a lot of fun at Western. My grades were always still great. Um, but I was just like, okay, I'm so career driven where I just started getting like internship after internship after internship and I was just like, okay, I partied enough and kept my grades up. Let me get serious with not partying because imagine what would happen if I didn't party. <laughs> like imagine if that was a thing. I'd probably be the owner of something of some media company right now. <laughs> so that that was the thing. I was like, okay, let me let me get serious because if you keep getting all these internships, it means you're on the right path and you need to, you know, focus on that more. So that was it. It was just like, okay, I need to come back to Chicago and um do the internships, go to school, and all that stuff. What was your first journalism internship? Do you remember? It was, oh, God, this is maybe telling my age, because it's like you got to imagine the whole resume. I want to say it, oh, Crane Chicago Business. Yeah, Get out. Yes, exactly. That's what it was. It was Crane Chicago Business, um, thanks to Loyola, Um was there for a while, and then it was one time I had, like, three internships. I had five internship offers at one time, and I had to turn two of them down because I was just like, I'm going to somehow make it work where I'm doing all three of these. Um, I turned down the CNN internship in the Chicago Bureau and WGN Radio here. I was just like, I just can't handle all of them at one time. So I And for some reason, I just still regret turning both of those down, but... God has a way of making sure that you're still on the right path and things that are for you are for you. So, you know, you probably wouldn't think young black woman crane Chicago business. I know. I know. So what was that experience like? Um, it was actually very good. Um, a lot of Loyola students, you know, obtained internships at Cranes. Um, I guess maybe they had some type of partnership, but you know, they only took like the really, really good ones and the serious ones. And I actually had no interest in business journalism whatsoever. None. You know, I'm just like, I just want to do hard news, you know, be in it and just continue on. Um, because with business journalism, you have to think about numbers. And I'm like, I am just not good at math. You you brought that up. Right. You said you were about the writing and the reading, but right. not about the math. Right. And I'm just like, oh some numbers so I was intimidated by business journalism and um, I got the internship and was like you know what you can do this you know you're Kathy F. Cheney my middle name is not I don't There's have a middle literally name an F. I don't have a middle name but the F is can I, <laughs> so I, can say I am Kathy fucking Cheney that's so what shit. I'm talking about <laughs> so, I told you you can be free on here just do it so I'm like I can do this and it actually was Kathy Payton at that time um, but I was just like, girl, go on ahead and do this. You know, sometimes things come once in a lifetime. You may not get another chance to do stuff. So I was like, go ahead and knock it out. And it was great. I worked on the, uh, the top book of lists, um, and did some other, uh, things. And actually the internship was extended and I was fine with it. I was just like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. 
you know. And I do remember during that internship is when the verdict for the OJ trial. Um, and I remember everyone in the newsroom was so quiet. And there, I think there was, I think I was one of two black people. I think the receptionist was the only other black person at Cranes at that time. So we're just sitting there listening to the whole verdict and everything. And as soon as they said not guilty, that newsroom was just like so disappointed. You heard all the groans. And I was quiet because I'm like, Miss Intern, you got you can't show nothing. You got to be quiet. But I was sitting there quiet. And I looked over and the receptionist, she looked and she smiled and walked away because she was just like, I ain't going to say nothing either. And it wasn't like, okay, I'm glad he got off, but it was just that divide. I guess it was just that natural divide where you saw all the black people like, yeah, you know, he got off and everyone else was just so upset or whatever. But that's exactly what it felt like in that newsroom. um, I'm like a year behind you and I'm at DePaul at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember everyone was watching it. Like I, I remember a lot about that because that summer, you know, I'm a big sports fan. I'm mm-hmm. watching the the NBA Finals, and mm-hmm. that's when the the chase happens. Mm-hmm. And I remember when when the verdict comes in, like everyone was in what we had like a common area that had a television. Mm-hmm. And everyone's watching. It's the same thing that that you're describing. Like there's clearly a divide. Yes. That that ends up happening in the reactions. Mm-hmm. And in our situation, people didn't have to necessarily be quiet, right? Because you're, but you're trying to keep a, a job <laughs> right, <laughs> at, right. at the time. But I, I remember like it was stark. Yeah. It was very, very stark when yeah. when it went down. So as that happens, how do you navigate it? Um, I just had to keep in my mind, you're at an internship. Um, However you present yourself is how you will be remembered or whatever. And I always just pride myself on let my work speak for itself. Um, Don't make big waves or whatever. And I was just sitting there like, okay, I'm at work. Let me act like I'm at work. But once I leave here and talk to my friends or family or whatever, I'm just going to let loose. But I just just had to maintain the decorum that I was like, okay, I'm at work. I'm a professional setting. If they paid their dues, they've been working here for a while, they can act, react however they want to, I can't. So I just kept that in my mind. Do so. you think that, that that experience helped you to to go through your, your professional life? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm always trying to maintain tact and diplomacy. I'm always trying to maintain, you know, just some type of um, – you know, people are always watching. When people say, you know, oh, you're, you can be judged, you know, just like everyone else. You can, it's a level playing field. And I'm like, no, for black people, we got to be two, three, four times as good and work three, four times as hard. And as now add on being a woman. Exactly. You know, so I've always kept that in mind where it's just like, okay, I know that eyes are always watching. So, you know, I have to maintain you know, just this high level of everything, even though others may not and just be like, well, I can say or feel however I want to. And I'm like, yeah, I wish I had that luxury, but I know what type of society we live in and I know how, you know, employers think or whatever. And I'm so early in my career, I can't be acting a damn fool or whatever and burn bridges. So it's like I haven't paid my dues yet. So I need to, you know, 
not walk on eggshells, but I need to know how to navigate everything. So I was always like under the radar with that type of thing. You said that you had a penchant for hard news. Like mm-hmm. that's what you were thinking that that you would go out there and be Lois Lane. Yeah, it was just one of those. Um, I needed to be out there to tell the stories, to find the stories of the not the untold, not the voiceless, but just, you know, stories that affected us, but no one really thought about or thought hard enough about. You know, you parachute a reporter into a black neighborhood and they'll just come out with the surface stuff. But I always wanted to dig deep and peel the onion. So I was just like, you know, this is and I wanted to be a reporter since I was seven years old. You know, we were always watching the news. I was always reading the paper. I read the encyclopedia for fun, you know, as a kid. So it's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of, that's why I say I'm a words person. So it was just always something that just I was drawn to. I just knew that I was born to be a journalist. And it's something that I um, just stayed true to on the path since then and it's like I'm living my dream. You know, I would do it for free, but don't tell my bosses. Yeah, we definitely don't want we don't <laughs> want to do that because they will ask you to work for free. What was your first you're talking about telling the stories that kind of need to be told. What was your first like major welcome to the big leagues of reporting moment when you're out in the streets? You know, it really wasn't—I don't want to say that it was an actual story. It was uh, overcoming fear that I had. What kind of fear? So being from the South Side, and I don't even know how this even came up, where I was, like, always scared of the West Side. I was like, I can't go to the West Side. I'm just scared to death. It's just, like, the horrible side or whatever. And I don't even know where that came from. Do you think that that comes from that schism that that does— live between south side people and west side people now i do but back then i didn't know where it came from i I just didn't know and i probably had been to the west side so many times and didn't even realize it but for some reason i was just like always scared of the west side and um when i started i was at reuters and then i started freelancing for the defender because i was making a transition of i wanted to make the conscious choice to you know report on stories for my community and go to the black press. So I made the conscious choice to transition from, you know, being at Reuters and reporting on national stuff and international stuff and going local, you know, for my community. Hyper local. Right. I I wanted to do that. I just felt that it was my time to do that, that I needed to, you know, just be from my community. And um, Roland Martin, he was over the defender at that time. And he was just like, you know, hey, I understand, you know, I had that same feeling, too, where I was just like, no, I need to be with the black press. So he was like, okay, do some stories for us. And he was like, this is one story, and it had had something to do with Dr. King or an anniversary or something. And he was like, yeah, and it's at this church. And the church was on the west side, and I was just like, I'll be damned. I was just like, I can't believe this. I was like, I am a grown-ass woman. (laughs) I am in my damn late 20s, and I'm still scared to go to the west side. And I was just like, but I can't turn down the assignment. I was just like, oh, shit. Told you to curse, and I'm sorry. I'm just totally fine. I was just like, I can't let nobody know that I'm scared. I let my husband know, and uh, the photographer at the Defender, and he's from the west side, so I was sitting there like, okay, you got to tell me what exit I need to get off. I need you to stay on the phone with me. I am so scared. I mean, I was like literally like, I hope I don't get shot. And then I go over there. And I was like, 
man, it's just like the South Side. <laughs> I was sitting there like, what the hell was I thinking? I mean, I still needed directions in order to get back home. And I was, and it was nighttime at that time, so I was just sitting there like, okay, I'm still a little bit scared. But after that, I was just like, man, I'll go to the West Side by myself. So I've had no problem going to the West Side. It just quelled all my fears. Um, I think that's something that I just needed to get over. That was like a big thing for me, even as a grown woman. Do you, because of that, have sympathy or empathy, I guess would be the better word, for reporters that are like fish out of water that are going to a new place for them to try to get their feet underneath them as they're trying to learn and report on a community? I do, um, and I just implore them to take the chance. I know it may be easier said than done, especially with, you know, all the headlines that we make now, the national headlines um, with our violence, but, and I can't say it won't happen to them, but... I mean, I, I grew up with street smarts um, along with book smarts, and I just know how to navigate and I would say, I guess, blend in wherever I am. Code switch. <laughs> yes, definitely. So I think it was probably easier for me because I will never let you see me sweat at all. So I can be on the west side that first time and act like, you know, I lived over there you know, and be so comfortable while the inside, I'm just sitting there a complete wreck, you know, <laughs> just just a bag of mush. Um, but I will never let you see me sweat. So I just think that some reporters, and we've had some at the Sun-Times that were just so scared, was just like, no, I, I think I, I can't do that. And I'm like, you know, you can. You really can. You're not going to be by yourself. Um, and I know it's scary from all the news reports, but... You need to get over there and do this. If you're going to be a journalist, you're going to be sent to so many different places that you may not want to go to. You can't control your assignments. And if you keep saying no to assignments, uh, they may be just saying no to you, period. So it's something that you have to get over and you have to just do. And once you do it more and more, it gets a little bit more comfortable. There was an incident when Kamala Harris had her introduction it was at Howard, right? When she did one of her introductions <laughs> and then the AKAs The skiweed. They skiweed and the reporter who was covered, I forget where she worked, but the reporter was like, I I'm shocked to see people I think it was the Washington Post. It made that you're right. It mm-hmm. was the Washington Post. Now I give that reporter credit because she went back, she took the criticism and she was did. like, I messed up. She okay, did. let me fix this. <laughs> let me figure out what it is that, that I'm I'm curious what you thought about that as as someone who edits at the highest level on on how and I will say that that's also to me that one of the dangers of active reporting on Twitter mm-hmm. or Instagram mm-hmm. because you don't she didn't have a you to go <laughs> no sweetie that's not what that is Oh I mean the first reaction it was it was quite comical cuz it was just like at first I was just like I forgot what she called it, howling or yes. whatever it was. And screeching. Was just, yeah, screeching. screeching was and I was what... like, what screeching is she talking about? Then I read the story. I was like, oh, baby girl, no, 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 no. And then I started thinking, like, did you not want to ask, you know, just a few black people in the newsroom, like, you know, hey, have you heard of this? Let me play this for you if you recorded it. Just ask somebody. And that's one of my big things. It's like, you know what? We exist in the newsroom. The few of us that are in the newsrooms. We exist for a reason. Don't be scared to reach out and ask us something, please. Or ask one of the people. 
Like you see someone do it and you're like, wait, what is that? And people will, AKAs will definitely tell you. Because they don't want you getting it wrong. Correct. Exactly. So she could have easily been there at that moment and asked somebody, just, hey, what was that? I mean, then you saw a few days later, some of her colleagues was like, hey, I'm in the newsroom with you. You could have asked me. And they were AKAs. So I, I hope that was a very teachable moment for her. So how do we go about getting representation how do you balance representation inside a community with fresh eyes on reporting in a community? I think it takes the reporter to actually want to learn a community, um, cultivate resources and sources and care. Um, A black community will not care if let's say a white reporter or a Latino reporter is in their neighborhood trying to do, you know, stories that are beyond the surface, if they're continuing to come out there and continuing to talk to people and trying to, you know, massage the resources that are there, they'll warm up to that person and be like, okay, this person does care. They are trying to, you know, get the nuances of the story instead of seeing a different person each time. They're like, okay, so you was just in here for the story and you got to hurry up and go. Yeah. And you can tell when somebody's rushing to, you know, leave to hurry up and get the hell out. Um, But it takes the reporter who really, really cares and wants to, you know, report for that community to do the work and show their face all the time and not just when something bad is happening, um, but just come back just to have a cup of coffee or whatever. I mean, they know how to do it, but that's what it'll take. All right, I'm going to turn your mic just a little bit. Okay. It wasn't staying. There we go. You don't have to hold it. I think we're good. Okay. Or maybe we should move your chair. Like just a little. There we go. Okay. Just. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. I want to ask you about Ebony. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What was your experience at Ebony like? I will tell you the team that I worked with, Kyra Kyles, um, Taryn Payne, we call ourselves a dynamic dozen, uh, Madison J. Gray, um, Toya Cross, Chan Smith, Melissa, um, Chantel, Heather, we were, uh, I'm I'm missing a name, Brittany Danielle, she's in California, and... um, Pedro, we were an awesome dynamic team. We gelled well, so well together. We were, um, we just worked well. We were just like a well-oiled machine. So working with them, it was, it was great. It was great. I mean, we talk at least twice a week still to this day, you oh, know, wow. as a group. So yeah, and Kyra and I, we're, we're Gemini twins. So we're, we were good friends before this. Uh, before Ebony, but it it was a great time to work there. Uh, the team is what made it great until, yep, <laughs> until the um, until the ownership change, and it was um, you can kind of see the writing on the wall, but you did everything that you could to uh, protect those that you worked with and those that were freelancing um, for you. And um, I will say that as the managing editor of Ebony during that time, 
there was a period of a few months where I spent 75% of my day going back and forth um, with the accounting department, Mm. trying to get freelancers paid, and then the other 25% actually doing my job that I was supposed to be there doing. But it was um, in that grave of a state where it was just like I didn't have a choice but to try to get people paid. And it was um, that that was a nightmare. I mean, it just never should have happened. And what bothers me the most is that you lay all of us off, I guess, in a cost saving move because, you know, Ebony O's hashtag Ebony O's went public. And if you saved all this money from cutting all of us. People still didn't get paid. They still had to file a lawsuit. So it's just like, okay, what are you doing? What I thought about while all of that was going on, and I guess in some respects still going on, mm-hmm. is there's a draw for those of us to Ebony. Absolutely. That, that there's you want to be a part Absolutely. Of, of one of the greatest mm-hmm. you know, ec- black economic stories Absolutely. in the history of this country. So how, how were you able to balance your love for what we grew up with Ebony being mm-hmm. to what it then became and understanding that other people were writing because writing for Ebony exactly. means something. Exactly. Um, it was wonderful, um, but it became more and more difficult as you saw the the face behind the mask and not just a particular face, but just, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, once you learned the the, real deal, yeah, the real deal, it's how the sausage is made. Exactly. You're like, okay, um, hmm, this is interesting, but you can't say anything. Um, and then you still have people who were willing to write for us. Um, because like you said, it's just the legendary Ebony, legendary black press. Um, and then at the same time, they were slow slow at being paid. And these were some things that we didn't know. Um, then after a while, some people were like, no, I can't write anymore because, you know, you all still haven't paid me. And we're like, what? So then we start going to account and like, so such and such, they haven't said they haven't been paid, you know. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get to it. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, you know, we need this for the next issue. And then we started hearing more and more stories about people who hadn't been paid. And that's when we were like, okay, this this is a huge problem. And then we had more people who wanted to write for us who didn't know the payment problems. And we wanted them to write for us. And we were like, in good faith, we just cannot ask you to do so because I don't know if you're going to get paid. And I can't have you mad at me, you know, for something like that. So it's... It put us in a tricky position because we have so many talented friends and we all know so many uh, wonderful journalists who've been laid off who could have used a freelance, you know, gig. And we should have been in a, been, in, been in a position to help them out, but we would have put them in a worse position by off having them write for us. Their stuff is published and they're waiting months and months to get paid. And it's just something that we just could not do the the team we were like ah, we can't do it we just can't you know we can't ask friends because at this point you know 
all of us know each other just about, or we know somebody who knows somebody and they're recommending. And we just did not feel good approaching anybody to ask them to write for us. Um, it just was not, it wasn't a good thing at all. Do you think that we'll ever see inside the black community with the way things have have changed from a media standpoint, something like Ebony again? Can can the Ebony that we grew up with even exist in 2019? With different ownership. Oh, completely with different ownership. Um and with the different ownership, the ownership has to be um someone with a media background that knows how to run a media company and understand journalism, you know, the editorial ethics, um, that gray line between editorial and advertorial and all that type of stuff. If new ownership had that wherewithal, if they had that knowledge, Ebony probably could turn around to be back to the way it was. I kept wondering if Ebony got caught in the, the switch to digital, that if that all magazines have have and are still going through this idea of, well, you've been a print company for 70 years, and now most of your traffic, people are going to watch digitally, and how do you monetize that? And we can globalize this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to necessarily be about Ebony. Right. I'm I'm curious on whether or not you think we've gotten to a point where media companies do have an understand a better understanding of how to monetize what happens in the digital world. I think they have, but then I think that one of the mistakes that they make is that if they get, you know, whoever your talent is that have huge social media followings, that making them the the face or, oh, let's, you know, put this podcast behind this person or whatever because they have this huge following and I've heard this before – that that will translate into if someone has, you know, 50,000, you know, followers, that'll translate into 50,000 clicks clicks and all that type of stuff. And that is just not the case. So I think that a lot of media companies are grappling with understanding that a social media following will not translate as easily as you think. It doesn't necessarily mean engagement. Exactly. At all. At all. And you need that engagement. You need... You need all of that in order to try to monetize it, get sponsors or whatever. And I think that a lot of media companies are rushing into doing a lot of digital um, strategy without actually thinking it through first. They're just throwing something out there because this person has this big social media following and it's not translating. I I keep wondering what the interaction, what it is like what you have to have an active social media following that. We see it like the highest levels mm-hmm. of social media, the people with four million, five million mm-hmm. followers. If Kim Kardashian put something out, why do you roll your eyes? Why you roll <laughs> you know that's a good example? It is a great example. It is. If, I'll say that. If she marches her army mm-hmm. towards something, they go do it. Yes, they on, do. On a smaller scale, that's a more difficult thing to to quantify. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm trying to figure out like how do we get to a point of understanding it, media capital M? How do we get to a point of understanding what types of social media followings actually do engage and are interactive versus the, mm. the numbers look cute? And there's also people who play with their numbers. You know, yeah. there's a lot of bought followers That's out true. there too. That's true. Uh, 
I really wish I had like the best answer for it. Because um, then you'd be rich. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would be. I would completely be rich. Um, I, I, I really just don't know. Um, I don't think we've figured out a formula for it. Period. I think everything has just been by happenstance that okay, the Kardashians are just golden for social media, for branding, for everything. Um, and then you can have an equally oh that wasn't right. I was going to say an equally talented family. Bad Kathy, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So you could have um, you can have a genuinely authentic. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find a diplomatic way to say this. Watching you are you do not the gymnastics on this is outstanding. <laughs> you are not making this better. Um. um <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, cut to commercial, cut to commercial. <laughs> so I'm trying to find a way to say this, to um, explain this. Uh, oh, Jesus. You know what? Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, all of them, they're not comparable to the Kardashians because they, forget it, they have talent, They they're substantive you, everything. You liked Will and Jada before they were on social media. Right. And they gave you something to go look at at the movies, on the TV, you know, to listen to. You're still listening to Summertime. So, I mean, there's great stock in everything that they have. Will Smith's Instagram. Yes. Is, I'm a follower now. I, it's amazing because he stayed away from it. Mm-hmm. He figured out like what he wanted mm-hmm. that brand to be on Instagram, and he is taken yes. to it like nobody else I've ever seen on on exactly. Instagram. Exactly. So it's like for them, I can see it, um, but they have everything behind them. They've built a foundation. They've paid their dues. Um, Kardashians, no. Um, but then you look at uh, Willow and Jaden. Huge following. You haven't seen much of them. I mean, they come out when they need to come out, when they want to come out, and you're still, like, so supportive. Like, Jaden's music. I didn't even know that he was doing music until I started seeing the Instagram thing. And I was like, oh, okay. But it's I didn't know he had that many followers. I didn't know that it was just the engagement was just that high, and it rivals the Kardashian everything, you know. So um, they've paid their dues. Um, their following is great. Um, their engagement is great. That translates into dollars or whatever. I mean, it's golden. What is it? The Red Table Talks? Yes. I mean, come on. With Jada, those are out right. of control. So, I mean, they've built a great formula, but they've had a great name. They've had great talent all these years. They've paid their dues. I just can't say the same for the others. Yes, for the Kardashians. and Kim ain't hearing this. She's not checking for the Chicago media podcast. I although, could care less if she al- was. although maybe she is. I actually shouldn't say that because of how small <laughs> Chicago is, and I, we yeah. all know her husband. Yeah, and we we're both probably one person away from <laughs> probably, probably. So maybe but, maybe they will hear this. I don't know. Well, I'm not scared about you know. I'm not scared, so you know. Hey, well, facts. You do you. Let me do me. You know. How does, in my lane. That's right. Yay. Um, <laughs> how does a reporter catch your eye? Like, what makes a good reporter or a good writer? Um, someone who listens, um, 
because my grandmother used to always tell me, never talk when you should be listening. And I think that that's a trait of a great reporter is that while we talk all the time, you know, do the writing, but we also listen. So listening a lot of the time when someone is talking, you can pick up and hear so much um, that can make your story even better than what you thought it would be. Um, you can probably actually get two or three different stories out of just one sitting with someone if you're listening. So a great reporter to me that I noticed is someone who is actively listening, who is actively taking notes all the time. It's something like no, no matter where I am, I always have a notepad with me um, or a notebook, and I'm always writing down stuff. I don't care if it's a meeting of somebody say, hey, how you doing? You know, and we're walking into a room just to say, hey, how you doing? Or what you have for breakfast? For some reason, I have a notepad with me and I'm ready to take notes. So when I see people who are always taking notes, I know that they're sitting there like, okay, something may come out of this. I don't want to miss it. Um, so just always thinking ahead, listening and asking questions, asking the right questions. Um, and it lets me know that they are actively listening instead of just hearing because it's Hearing and listening are two different things to me. Um, so if they're actually listening instead of hearing, taking notes, and then just asking the right questions, they're very inquisitive. Um, that's the sign of a good reporter to me. When it comes to press conference settings, how how would you want a reporter to act? Or do you need them? Do you need to hear their voice asking a question in a press conference? Or are you okay with them, like you said, listening feeling out the room because because I wonder about that I mean I used to I used to cover the Bears on as a beat mm-hmm. and I tried there were definitely moments and like looking back on it that I peacocked the you know, in a press conference mm-hmm. but usually that was only because I couldn't get the one-on-one time with the person to ask them the question mm-hmm. whether it was off the record or on background or whatever I I keep wondering if one has to ask a question in a press conference to have covered a press conference successfully. I've had this happen a couple of times where I will write down like a list of questions that I definitely need to know the answers to going into a press conference. And then I'm also doing that listening so I can write down something. If I hear somebody say something, I'm like writing this down like, okay, follow up with this, you know, with this question. If some of the other reporters have already asked you know, what was on my list, I'll mark it off my list. And if they've been got they've got to everything on my list, I don't need to ask anything. Um now if there's a follow up, yeah, I'm listening for that. But if I do see that, you know, some of the reporters have already hit on what I came to try to touch on, I'm okay with not asking a question. Um but if there's a follow up that I, you know, that I hear from listening, then I'll definitely just be like, hey, no, wait a minute. You know, I'll I'll speak up. But if you didn't came in there with your list of questions and the reporter got so greedy, the first one then asked three or four and, you know, the person allowed it and I got all my answers, I'm good. Now, at the end of it, I may, you know, try to hang back a little bit and just ask like maybe one question over again just to see if the answer may just be tweaked a little bit just to see. Because sometimes they'll say it and they'll say it in a different way or they'll add some stuff on that they didn't when it was first asked. So I'll do that. Um, but, you know, if it's if it's just a basic press conference, some are basic. Um, I don't need to ask anything if everybody else has hit on it. Outside of the listening aspect of it, and I think that's really important, what's the biggest mistake you see young reporters make? Not recording it. 
not not recording it at all. Um, you don't have to have a digital recorder now. Your phone has some type of note or recording device that's already built in. Please hit record because um, while you may have a photographic memory, while you may have thought that you wrote everything down as they were talking, things can get messed up. Um, when the weather's bad and you wrote in pen, mm. uh, it's best that you write in pencil. I mean, just anything could happen, but you need to have a backup because if your editor is like, okay, let me hear him say this again just to make sure we're not, you know, misquoting and you don't have no backup, that's a problem. And that's a problem for me. Um, so just not recording stuff. And then you got to call back to, you know, um, can you, I, I, don't, I didn't write down what you said, you know, can I ask you this question one more time? So then that may anger whoever, you know, you were at the press conference getting the information from. So they'd be like, weren't you listening the first time? Didn't you record it the first time? That's why we do this. Exactly. Exactly. So not recording stuff, you know, um, I, I just don't understand. Um, I Just please record the stuff because anybody can come back and say, well, I didn't say that. I'm going to be like, hold on, let me pull this up. Yes, you did. You want to hear that you said this? Pull up that recording to prove that they said this because there are plenty of times when people would be like, I did not say that. You misquoted me. I have never had that problem because I will come back and be like, I didn't misquote you saying anything. Listen to yourself. Here's the transcript. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I cannot stand transcribing, but it's essential. Um, but that that's the biggest mistake that I see is somebody who does not record any interviews that they do. As we sit here recording, it's the night <laughs> after uh, a pretty historic mm. election in Chicago where we now have the two runoffs yeah. where we have Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. I'm curious on what things you're concerned about when it comes to the coverage of a a showdown that we've never seen anything like how do we do this the right way? Oh, I think that we need to ask the hard questions still. People may think that the hard questions have been asked, you know, during this election cycle and we've gotten up to this point. But we need to reiterate that we need to ask all the hard questions. Like I've covered so many police board meetings. Um, so I've seen Lori Lightfoot in action, you know, where uh, – BYP 100, Black Youth Project 100, has shut down several police board meetings. She has handled them with grace and, um, like, stood her ground, but it didn't always look like the right thing for her to do. Instead of just letting people vent and get stuff off their chest, she shut stuff down. So I see both sides of it. Um, and like I said, I've covered so many police board meetings. I've covered so many... Um, I probably covered like 99% of the demonstrations um, in Chicago with the uh, Black Lives Matter um, over the last few years where um, I've seen her, I've seen President Preckwinkle. There are just still a lot more questions to be asked, a lot more hard questions. Um, go beyond Laquan McDonald. Um, just get into the weeds. of Just peel the onion you know, on just everything. You just got to ask the hard questions um, to see which one will be the best candidate for you. I know that they say that um, Lightfoot doesn't have that executive management experience. 
she may have it. It just may not be in the public, you know. In the political, political sphere. Right. Um, but she does have it. And how well will that translate over to the political side? Um, you may say that Preckwinkle may not have the sternness where I think both of them actually are pretty stern. They've been very stern with each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, and I've covered uh, Preckwinkle when she was an alderman of the Fourth Ward. So I've had experience covering both of them, um, but I just think that people need to really, really just continue asking more questions. Um, Look at all of the stuff that's come out and just try to figure out, are we missing something? Um, Just do your homework. And what bothers me is that people say, well, the media needs to make sure that they ask about this and they're not letting us know that this person said this or did this. And I'm like, no, the media has been doing this. Have you been, where are you getting your news from? You know, how are you consuming your news? And what outlets are you reading? What outlets are you listening to? What outlets are you watching? Um, And if you're relying just on looking at your Twitter feed, you're not going to be well informed um, because most people don't click on the actual story to read further. They'll see the headline, they'll see that one sentence, and then they're out. And they think they've informed their opinion and just, you know, made their mind up about one candidate or not. It's just it's not that way. You've got to do your homework. And I will say the local media has done a good job of, you know, trying to get everything out there about all the candidates. Have How do we go about increasing uh, news literacy in, mm-hmm. in our community? How do we do it? Social media has made it so hard. Um, and I am one where I'm stuck to my phone all the time where, you know, I'm if I have a break, I'm catching up on Facebook and Twitter to see, you know, what's been out there, what I haven't seen. I mean, it's just everything is so immediate on your phone, on your desktop now. I don't know how we improve the media literacy. Um, I think it may just have to be starting in school. Um, I mean, we have some news literacy projects that go on in a few schools, but I think it has something that has to be mandatory, unfortunately. Mm. And I really think so because otherwise – I mean, kids are on YouTube all the time. You know, they're getting their news from that or TMZ. TMZ can be right sometimes. You know, they can be accurate. They've broken a bunch of stories, especially in my realm in sports. They have broken a ton of stories. So I I think that they, um, I think it's just really got to be an education that starts in school. Like if you're going to have, you know, black history mandatory in, what is it, public universities now? Um. Why can't you teach news literacy, you know, in the elementary school level? Because you still have people that don't understand the concept of 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 sources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely don't understand the concept of anonymous sources. Yes. Um, OK, so I will say anonymous sources are when an outlet, when a credible outlet uses anonymous sources. Um, everyone in the newsroom may not know who that person is, but the writer and the editor know who that person is. And they will only use anonymous source if they know that that person is solid gold. Solid gold. So everybody may not know who it is, but the writer and the editor knows. Um, and that's that's usually the acceptable time to use anonymous sources. Um, and we get a lot of stuff on background And actually, and it may be true for you as well, we don't always tell what we know. We know so much 
personal stuff about so many high profile people. Hallelujah. That we just we can't we can't say and we don't want to say. And it would be so juicy to let out, but we're not going to jeopardize that relationship. And, you know, we just everything is just not for public consumption. And some people trust that they know that you're not that kind of person. Well, they know that they don't have to say this is off the record, um, which you should anyway beforehand. But they know that, okay, I'm not dealing with that type of journalist where I can feel comfortable and know that it's not about to pop out somewhere. Yeah. I I try to explain this to people and (laughs) they don't quite get it. You know, you know stuff Mm -hmm. and not everything necessarily has to be reported. Yeah. And you do have stuff, and then contextually, mm-hmm. later on, you could go, okay, that makes sense, because I remember mm-hmm. talking to exactly. such and such about this. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's difficult to try to explain. I, I usually have to do it with you know athletes and coaches mm-hmm. and front office people in sports. But the thing that always cracks me up about it is how often an athlete or a coach or an executive in sports will deride the concept of anonymous sourcing when they themselves will tell you stuff and will tell will ask you don't put my name to that <laughs> and then you see people like you really you went off on the press because of anonymous mm-hmm, sourcing mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. all the stuff that exactly that you told me on and, background on background that yeah. that you don't want people to know that you were a part of. It's a fascinating. It really is. But but even but honestly, like even journalists learning the difference between off the record and on background. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a completely different thing. Off the record is I can't say nothing. We ain't even had this conversation. I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, background is you know, according to someone close to the investigation, blah blah blah. But yeah. Off the record is completely just, man, man. It's, it's fascinating. It, it really is. All right, now look, this is a hard left turn here. Mm-hmm. You knew it was coming, but it's a hard left turn that, that we have to take here because I'm, I'm actually Ooh, really. Lord, I don't know what's coming. Yes, what? you do. I was re- I'm was. i actually really enjoying our, like, we need to have more journalism gab sessions. Because <laughs> we do. Also, by the way, Gemini. So ah! put me in the. Okay. Put me in the group, too. I want to know how you got involved in the Surviving R. Kelly doc. Oh, oh, okay. So I... Wait, wait, wait. Before you start, let mm-hmm. me just say that when I saw you, I was like, shit's getting real. <laughs> and they're, they're a legitimate journalist mm-hmm. who's in it and of it is on this. Yeah. And you know this stuff. It's another one of those... We were talking in the barbershop. I'm I'm going to let you finish. I promise. Um, we were in the barbershop talking about this. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how much of an open secret yeah. R. Kelly's life yeah. has been. Yeah. And I was talking with one of the barbers that, and I'm in Hyde Park. They were talking about how he used to bring Aaliyah See? to the barbershop. I've seen his car. At Kenwood. Mm-hmm. I've seen him at the McDonald's on Lake Park. Mm-hmm. All of these things where all of us know, but there wasn't, it felt as if there was nothing that could be done mm-hmm. about it. So how did you get involved with it and why was it important for you to do? So 
just from me covering him um, since all the allegations, like, started coming out, um, and I covered, like, every single day of the trial. So I was, like, you know, just in the weeds of it all. And um, and people have asked me, have I ever interviewed him? I've never wanted to interview him for the sole reason of all these allegations. Um, you know, it just didn't sit well with my spirit. I can, you know, report on him and all this type of stuff, but personally interview him, I had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. Because um, it's one of those, I'm just, I don't fall for the charismatic, you know, stuff. And I'm, I'm just one to just point out a lot of BS. And I'd be like, look, can we get to, you know, the interview? You know, it's one of the, because I've heard how he has been in a few interviews. And I'm like, yeah, see, that ain't me. That ain't me. I, I know how to be nice and diplomatic, but I also know how to just be like, okay, look, I'm here to do my job. You're wasting my time right now. You're going to answer the question you're not. Okay, bye. Um, so I've, I've never wanted to um, interview him. But it was, I didn't even know that this documentary was going on, but I got a call from a producer was saying, you know, we we know that you've covered the trial. Um, we know that you've done a few pieces about him. We're doing this documentary. Uh, we really do want a journalist, a black journalist who has, you know, who was there, who can help put some stuff into perspective, who's grown up in the city. Um, do you mind doing this? And I thought about it, and I'm like, okay, did cover the trial, um, know a lot of background about it, because one of my cousins used to um, be friends with some people that were in public announcement when public announcement was starting. So I knew a little bit of the stuff back then before I even started reporting on him. And um, I was like, okay, if your role is a journalist and you don't have to really opine about anything, go ahead and do it. So that was the reason is that they they wanted a journalist and it was just natural for me. So it just felt like I was going to work. So I was just like, I can do this. And then I had no idea that it was of the great magnitude that it turned out to be. I did not know it was going to be like in, you know, six parts. I didn't know it was going to be that extensive. I had no idea. Um, I just thought I was going to film for a day and, you know, to turn into like, you know, just an hour documentary and that would be it, you know, some background on his life, um, some of the allegations, the, the trial and, you know, where do we go from here? But after I saw it and read about it, I was just like, damn, I was like, okay, this is some deep shit. So how many days did you? I filmed for one full day. One full day. One full day. The hair was... By the way, <laughs> I went back to one of my um, a few years ago. I decided to cut my hair off and um, color it. Um, it was like a birthday gift for me. And uh, the stylist was like, so what do you want? I was like, you know what? I don't know. You give me what you think will look best on me. And she gave me that little updo. I was like, It was okay. spectacular. It's <laughs> like, okay. And uh, I kept it for about a year, then went back to regular Kathy, and then I was just like, you know what? I feel like going spiky and up again. So I loved it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank I, th- you. I thought I thought you looked great. More importantly, I thought the content that you were given was really important. So now that you you had an idea of it, when did you know that it was going to be in six parts? Um, when 
it went public when Dream Hampton, the whole executive producer, when the story started coming out, Lifetime is doing this, you know, six-part series about R. Kelly, and I was just like, oh, that must be the thing, because I knew it was going to be on Lifetime. Um, the original date that was floating around was like maybe November. So then November's coming, and I was like, I'm not hearing anything. I was just like, okay, well, editing, all that type of stuff, you never know what goes on. So I said, okay. And then when I started seeing all the news reports, I was just like, oh, this must be it. So I hit up the producer. I was like, this is the thing. She was like, yep. I'm like, six parts, huh? I was like, three nights. I was just like, wow. I was just like, okay, this is um, this is how many damn people, you know, were involved in this and going to be on camera. Had no idea. It was so you be didn't get huge. you didn't get a chance to watch it before it aired. No, and I didn't want to either. Um, like about a week before, I had the opportunity to watch it, but I just said no. I'm gonna watch it. You know, you're gonna whenever. react in real time. Right, right. I wanted to do that. And one of the nights that um the day that I filmed was the same day that Javante Cunningham filmed. She filmed two days because she had two different hairstyles. So the day that she had the ponytail. Uh, we filmed the same day, and we actually are childhood friends. She grew up on the next block from me. She's a few years younger than me, but yeah. So once you see this, what's your reaction to watching it? Um, it was so damn heavy. I was, I was like floored. It just even though I just knew everything that was in it, you know, just from the the stories that were reported, but just the voices and seeing the faces and they're putting their own, you know, you hear it from them. It was, um, it was so heavy. I actually had trouble sleeping the first two nights. It was just that damn heavy. It was like reliving everything all over again. And I'm just a reporter, you know, I'm not a survivor or anything. So I can just imagine, you know, the survivors reliving that and seeing and and tears flowing and stuff like that. It was, it was so heavy. I was just watching and then I'm sitting there like, wow um just like amazed and it just seeing the women talk um I think it put it into a different perspective for me and I've heard for a lot of other people too because they were like yeah we we read the stuff before we saw the news reports but man hearing from them that like solidified I guess the the truth for them where they were, like, still holding out the benefit of the doubt for him. Like, mom, maybe they were lying or whatever. But when they heard from the women, they were like, yeah, I'm done with him completely. Were you surprised at the reaction? Because it was a phenomenon that that I I, I honestly was surprised. And you know what's funny? I had, a, I had a conversation with my producer. So I have two producers who are black. One's in... Not yet 40, and then I have another one who's 25. Okay, so a little bit Big of a difference, right? generational difference there. We were talking about it, and then I have a couple of white producers, and we were talking about R. Kelly, and I realized that R. Kelly is not white famous, or at least wasn't white famous, because I brought it up to them, and they were like, who's R. Kelly? And I was like, <laughs> what? And so then I, then I went through it. I said, Space Jam. I believe, and mm. they're like, oh, oh yeah, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. I got gotcha. you. But it was interesting to me how other communities, like we, we talked about, it was an open secret in mm-hmm. the black community in Chicago. Right. right. But seeing other communities look at this and go, how is this guy walking the right. streets right. right now 
was a an eye opener for me mm-hmm. as I was watching it play out on Twitter. And it's sad because if they're saying how's this guy walking around the streets and the black community has known this, it lets me know that we have failed the girls, you know, the alleged victims, the victims. We've failed them. And and I think I may have said that maybe in a documentary that in a way we did fail them. Um, all of us did because we knew some things. Um, we heard about it. Some of us, of course, we couldn't prove it or whatever, so we're just going to go and say, oh, you know, I heard he's doing some stuff. And, and then like, get sued. Exactly. Um, but we, we've we all failed because we've all known about it. We've all talked about it. Hey, you hear about this? I heard this is going on. And no one really took it serious. And it just goes back to the thing where I've been asked many times of, why do you think no one really cared? Um, and it goes back to the, is it because it's black women? Black women aren't valued, you know, in society. And in some ways, we're not. I mean, I've covered so many um, cases of missing and murdered black women and black people, period, that don't get the attention that the cute white woman does, you know, national attention. And we're struggling to get local attention. Um, So it goes back to the, if he had done this to a white woman, he may be in jail by now. He may be doing some prison time, but because it's it's black girls that people just have little respect for, that's why he's still out. Why do you think we got it wrong? Like, why why didn't we as a community handle this better? Because it's a subject that we don't like to talk about. Um, For some families and some white families, other families, period, you know, Sexual abuse or molestation goes on in their family, but it's just like it seems like in the black community we do not want to talk about it. We do not want to admit to it. We don't want to go to counseling for it. We just we want to take care of it on our own or we want to just ignore it and think that when you ignore it, it goes away. We will separate mm-hmm. our children from mm-hmm. the abuser. And then that's just it. Without acknowledging the exactly. abuse. Exactly. We have a huge problem acknowledging um stuff that's detrimental to our families and to ourselves. We have that huge problem. Uh, we, we don't like to go to counseling, and we think that the church can just help solve everything. Do you think that there's part of our psyche that doesn't allow for us to tell some of these stories because of what it will look like on the outside? That, that as, as, as a black community, that we don't want— those types of stories told about us because it may reinforce a stereo, whatever. It may reinforce a stereotype. And I will say, and I'm an advocate for the black press. I love the hell out the black press. I mean, I've, I've worked for Ebony Magazine. I've worked for Defender. WVON, Chicago Defender. I mean, I'm I'm Miss Black Press. You know, half of my career has been in the black press strategically because I love my people. Um, but the black press has failed in this, too. We've got to share some blame. It's just like we don't want to call ourselves on the carpet. We don't want to pull our own coattails. We don't want to let family know when they're acting a damn fool and they need to get their stuff together. And we just don't say anything. But the minute outsiders do it, we're jumping on them. And then at the same time, then that's when react. we react to it and try to clean it up. You got to clean up your own backyard before you let somebody else come in and do it. And so I think the black press has felt that, too, because it's one of those 
the Black press was founded to highlight and uplift the black community, the, the great stories. Um, if you look at the founding of, I've been doing a lot of research on on John H. Johnson, mm-hmm. and you look at what the Negro Digest was, exactly. and and what Ebony was was exactly. supposed to be. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. Tell the stories that aren't being told, and and have it be something that is uplifting exactly. it, to the community. So where does that morph into protect the community at all costs, even if it means protecting a villain? Right. I think that it's as time went on and how the landscape of the media has changed, I think it was the responsibility of the black press to, while at the same time we're, you know, sharing our uplifting stories, stories of encouragement, all of that type of stuff, we should have been calling out our own and saying, hey, this is unacceptable. And we're going to not put you in time out, but we're going to call it out because we know that this is wrong and we're family. We can do this. We should be able to do this. I think they should have taken on that part and that responsibility, too, um, to just let the people know, okay, we're not just trying to protect and harbor a criminal, a fugitive. We're trying to help. We're trying to let people know we love our people. And because we do love our people, we're going to call this out, too. Wrong is wrong. And... We got to protect our own. I mean, it's it's part of protecting your family as well. Having been a part of that and watching what has happened since the documentary came out, how do you feel about this? Because this this seems like for any sort of journalist that has some activists in them, and most mm-hmm. of us do. Right. That's why we get involved in it. Right to see an actual impact of your work where police reopen investigations and he mm-hmm. ends up being put in jail on new charges new victims come right. forward and tell their stories i feel like there's got to be at least some part of you that feels gratified that instead of turning dream down mm-hmm. that you said yes i'm going to go and be a part and lend my my yeah. expertise to this story. Yeah, I think that it's one of those, um, I mean, just seeing how everything is playing out now, I think, and still having my journalism hat on, I think that the families that have been impacted by all of this um, can probably feel now that things are moving in the right direction Um and taking on a different course than back in 2008 when there was the acquittal. Um, completely different set of charges. I know some people are saying, well, doesn't double jeopardy attach? Nope. That was child porn. This is sex abuse. Um, you have some cooperating, you know, victims, witnesses. So it's a completely separate thing. So I think that um, these families that are impacted with these specific cases and then the ones that were impacted by during the acquittal probably have a greater chance at seeing something go the way that they want it to go. Um, it's, it's astounding. I mean, we're talking about allegations of different tapes now with some of the same stuff. I was asked a few days ago, you know, what's different now with the allegations now than when, you know, I was covering it 
more than a decade ago. And I was like, there's nothing different with the allegations. The allegations are still the same. It's just some different people. Um, but there's nothing new at all. I mean, it's like just different people, but the same allegations. I mean, that's that's telling in itself right there. And if you have all of these different women independent of each other who did not have a conversation before, did not know each other, all saying very similar things, it's one of those, okay, there's got to be some truth to something, right? I mean, who's just all of a sudden going to come up with some similar stories and they all just be lying? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all independent. So that has to make people wonder, too, like, huh, what's going on? And his, I saw this on Twitter today, that the Beehive has nothing on R. Kelly's fans. Man. I can't believe he's out of jail and the way that he got out of jail. I, I, I am astonished. She too old for this. Facts. Too old for this mess. It's, I, I am too. I'm sitting there like I cannot believe at all. And that restaurant has some good food. Unfortunately, I just can't go back there now. Never, never go back there. No. And the food is good. <laughs> Man, the fried okra, <laughs> the greens, the mac and cheese, the dressing is good. They have papaya mimosas. What? The food is good. And I just unfortunately can't go back. You can't support that. I just cannot. I, I just cannot. I understand it. I promised if I ever broached this subject inside the podcast that I was going to make sure that I did one thing. And that was talk about Jim DeRogatis. Mm-hmm. And the amount of work and the flack mm. that that he took mm-hmm. in his... Because he was almost out on an island mm-hmm. at the beginning of this. And there, there were some... Uh, I, I feel like there's some vindication for him that Absolutely. he was he was out here fighting for Absolutely. these girls and for these women who were being attacked by this predator. He's like he has been that champion for all of them for the longest time, even with his journalist hat on. I mean, he just man, if he would have ignored the facts as he said that came across his thing on Thanksgiving weekend. We may not be where we are today, but just he said his his reporter instincts that he learned, you know, from back home, I think it was in New Jersey or something like that. It's just it just kept gnawing at him. And after Thanksgiving was over, he went back to that fax and looked at it and was just like, let me check this out. And they talked with his, you know, colleague Abdon Polish and here we are. Um, I just it I think that is the ultimate vindication for him. He worked tirelessly for so many years um, and never let up. And then he gained the trust of all of the victims that have come forward that still, you know, continue to reach out to him. Um, he's just like their their angel. Um, he's I can't wait to read his book. Um, and he's he's a gentle soul, too. He really, really is. Um, when I used to work at BZ, he was there as well. But he is. Um, and we've had a few conversations None of this would be possible without him at all staying on this. You know, it just, I I don't know. It's like we owe everything to Jim DeRogatis for this. You know, hold on, as R would say, Jim Sirigatis or whatever his name is on that 19-minute deflection that he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you yeah. talked about, about the people that are sycophants for R. Kelly. Did you get any backlash? 
you know, surprisingly, I didn't get any backlash, and I think it's because my role was the journalist, um, and I was reporting on, you know, what was happening during the trial, the allegations, his upbringing, and things like that. I think I escaped a lot of backlash because I was in that professional role. Um, but I did see and hear a lot of backlash backlash that um, some of the survivors got, and it just it tore me apart. It just made me—the whole documentary made me cry inside because I was just like, oh, God, you know, just— them reliving this um, sparkle. We were on Windy City Live together a few days after that, and um, she had gotten back to a, a good, safe space with her family where they were talking again for about a couple of years. And then this documentary comes back, comes out, and everybody's looking at it again. And after the show, I said, well, what's the relationship with your family now? She was just like, I'm back on the outs. They don't talk to me anymore. It's unbelievable. Exactly. Un- unbelievable. Exactly. I like to end the podcast on a good note. So I'd love to know what makes you hopeful for journalism going forward? Oh, um, what makes me hopeful is helping groom the next generation because we have to retire sometime, Lawrence. Mm. And um, we have to make sure that the people <laughs> that are replacing us <laughs> – so, so we go go from auntie and uncle to, to grand, <laughs> grandma and grandpa. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those we're doing now what a lot of our career politicians have not been doing. We're massaging the next generation and helping to pass the baton, which a lot of our career politicians have not been doing. They will die in office before. They haven't been grooming anyone over the last decade or so. Yeah, there's a dearth of. Exactly. So, no, we've got some time. However, we've just, I'm hopeful that, you know, we will have the next generation of great journalists because we're helping mold them. We're helping bring them up. We're lifting as we climb, you know, and we're just motivating them. So that, that, that's what I'm, why I'm hopeful is that, you know, we're, we have our hands in it. I really appreciate you. I've probably kept you way too long. That's okay. But this was fun. Yeah. And we need to do this again where we, we can do like more like happy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but I do think that there's a lot of lessons that people can take from your journey and, and everything that you've seen, which I think are really valuable. Oh, thank you. So thank I thank you very much for, for doing this. Oh, and introducing God. me to Lolly. I I didn't know that. The great Lolly Bowen. Yes. I'm so happy because she's totally going to be on the podcast. <laughs> She'd be holding it down at the Tribune for the South Side and for the black community. That that That's the chick. See, the next time you come back, we can only talk about Nine Mag and Black Ink Chicago. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. I can't wait. Because I do watch a lot of reality TV because being in the news business and you're Dealing with all of the hard news, I need that escape from reality that I don't have to think and I have to be sitting there, look at this damn fool. So <laughs> that's why I, I'm unapologetic about watching that, um, Real Housewives of Atlanta, all of that stuff. I Yeah, love and hip-hop, I, I watch it all because I, I need my escape from, re, from reality. Kathy, you are the best. Thank you. Love you. Thank you. Well, I hope that... You gained some perspective listening to Kathy talk about some very serious issues and also given some great 
advice on how media works and how it should work. I really enjoyed talking with her. That was a lot, a lot of fun. And then it's funny when I went to go get Kathy from the lobby, she introduced me to Lolly Bowie and I, who I'd never met, who's an incredible writer in her own right. And at some point Lolly's going to be on the podcast. Although it was funny. We spent probably 15 minutes. These three accomplished journalists sitting there in the lobby of the Prudential Plaza talking about Black Ink Chicago. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a reality show of VH1, and we were talking about it, and Charmaine, who's one of the stars, was actually a sales assistant at the score. And I don't know if um, I should get Charmaine on here because her her story is fascinating. At some point, I'll do that. I'll get – but me – Kathy and Lolly were sitting there talking about Nine Mag and Black Ink Chicago. Whatever. I need to figure out if I need to get a jingle for the mail. Like a do 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 It's time for your mail. Blah, 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 blah. I don't know if if I that sounds like a horrible jingle. But maybe I'll get one. So let me take a look at some of your emails that came in. And you can email us in this podcast at House of L email. Wait, that's not even right. That's so stupid. Let's try that again, idiot. House of L podcast at, at like seriously, like really is the email in email.com. House of L podcast at gmail.com. Okay. House of L podcast at gmail.com. This is from Alex. He says, Lawrence, three things. Love the longer run times. Keep the F-bombs coming. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Mark Rohde episode is pure gold, and I listened to it a couple of times. Hashtag my new favorite. All right, Alex. I'm glad. I mean, I looked at the numbers this morning on the Grody one. It is still, like, popping. So when, when a new month, I get breakdowns per month of who's listening to what per month. And Grody is is still doing great numbers in March, even though we did that interview at the beginning of February. This from Michael says, Lawrence, really enjoyed the podcast from the first one with Jason Benetti. I would like to hear from Melissa Isaacson, the former Chicago Tribune sports reporter and now full-time lecturer at Northwestern University. When she was laid off by the Tribune, I began to follow her blog, which she expressed some raw emotions about the experience and its effect on her family. Her blog seemed to end when she joined ESPN to write articles for their website until she was laid off again in 2017. I learned about her recent experience from a quick Google search. I think she would be an interesting listen, especially since she has changed her employment twice because of the restructuring of mass media field. Keep up the good work. Although I am not in the media field, I enjoy listening to people describe their experiences. Although not a hip-hop fan, I still enjoy Chris Tannehill's summary of the local Chicago hip-hop scene. That's from Mike. It's funny Melissa Isaacson played a big role in something that I'm doing right now that I won't tell you until a couple months down the road. I'm just going I'm I know I'm a I'm a dick for doing that. I'll just tell you that she and I had a couple of really long conversations about something that was important to me and important to her and she tipped over the scales in the direction that I went. 
I agree with you. I think that she would be an excellent person to talk to on the podcast, and I will give her a jingle and see if she'd be willing to do it. All right? This from John. John, your podcast. John, I'm so bad at radio and podcasting today. Lawrence, your podcast is such a great look into the world of journalism and people's personal lives. I think a podcast like this, two-hour run time is just fine. Keep up the good work. That's not why I'm here, though. Would it be possible to get guys like Hawk or Pat? I know this is a left-field type question, but John Kelly from the old NBC5 crew, I literally met this guy way back in 2002 in the Winter Olympics and took a photo with him. He's doing, like, entertainment stuff. I saw him recently. Um, That's not a terrible... A, a terrible suggestion. I don't know if I could get Hawk to come in and sit down. I mean, he lives out in Granger, Indiana. I I don't know if I can get it. You know who the White Sox suggested that I talk to? And I thought it was weird that they made the suggestion. Harold Baines. This was before he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Harold's not really known for talking. Evidently. But I actually think that he would be a really interesting person if he was willing to give. This from Matthew. Lawrence, from the loop back in the day, Jonathan Brandmeier. That's who you said. Okay, I suggest I should get Brandmeier on the show. I love Johnny B. I grew up listening to Johnny B. So I'd have no problem with that. And this one from Tom. Hey, Lawrence, I'm enjoying the podcast very much. My three favorite episodes, Jason Goff, Joe O, and Barry Rosner. What I would really enjoy hearing is a combination podcast with Joe and Barry. Thanks. That's from Tom. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. I don't think I'm going to do that yet. Like I said, there's like a round robin type deal that I'm doing where I'm trying not to have the same people on before I kind of go really go around the Chicago media scene. Like there are people that I still haven't interviewed that are high on my list. Like I want to talk with Marissa Bailey from channel two. Like we have a bunch of mutual friends. She seems delightful and a little feisty. And I like that. I haven't had Lauren Jiggets on the podcast. I've had her on the radio show, but I haven't had her on the podcast or her dad. That might be fun. Talk with DJ. Speaking of DJ, I haven't had Dick Johnson on the show. I was thinking about it. I I should have someone to talk about the election, although if you listen to this episode, you heard Kathy and I talking about the election a little bit. Maybe a Marianne Ahern or a Carol Marine or a, a, a Nadir Issa. I'm saying that right? I hope I'm saying that right. But, yes, I thank you for the emails. And, again, it's House of L Podcast at gmail.com. That'll wrap it up for this episode. Maybe then I'll figure out how to talk. I can tell you this. When I came in to record the front and back ends of this pod, I ran into Tom Thayer in the hallway. And I can tell you that there's going to be a Tom Thayer episode soon. Ooh, it's going to be good. Appreciate you listening. If you're on iTunes and you're listening... Subscribe, give us five stars, write a two-word rating. It's great, or something like that. 
it, as strange as it sounds, it actually helps. Like, this is where the listener can help us because it helps with placement and all that sort of stuff. So please, please, please give us a five-star and a review. And we're closing in on over a 1,000 reviews, and most of them have been great. And I know that's because of you. So thank you very much for that. We'll be back with episode 60 next week. Thanks for listening. Hey!